When the idea was first conceived, not many thought it had even the slightest chance of becoming a reality. A joint normalization between Israel and the United Arab Emirates? Normalization between Israel and Bahrain? But that didn't dampen the enthusiasm or stop the conversation about the Abraham Accords. What do they really mean for Israel and for the Arab world? That's our focus coming up. Hey, welcome to The Land and the Book. We call it a one-hour flyover of the Middle East. Our pilot, as always, is Dr. Charlie Dyer. And sitting in the co-pilot seat, I'm John Geiger with a question right off the bat. How do you share the gospel with a Jewish person? Because of cultural, historical, and religious differences, it is, frankly, challenging sometimes to navigate a gospel conversation with somebody from a Jewish background. Have you ever wondered how the quote-unquote professionals go about this? Yeah, and to answer that question, our friends at Life and Messiah want to mail you samples of the tracks their staff use as they share the gospel. Now, this will serve a dual purpose of equipping you in methods of presenting the gospel and also supplying you with tracks you can give to your Jewish friends and neighbors. Life and Messiah's prayer is that these tracks will help further the spread of the gospel among the Jewish people. Now, to receive this helpful assortment of tracks, all you need to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button there for more information. Don't miss out on this great opportunity. And let's turn to our look at current events from the week in the Middle East. Large anti-government rallies are being held in Tel Aviv and other cities in Israel to protest what they're calling the government's plan to dismantle Israel's independent judicial system. Is the new government really trying to eliminate one of the pillars of Israel's democracy? Or maybe is there another side to the story? Help us understand the key issues here. Yeah, John, there is more to this story than we're seeing in the headlines. And it starts by recognizing that Israel's democratic system isn't the same as ours. Our constitution established a republic with separation of powers. You know, we have two legislative branches, the House and the Senate, that help keep each other in check. And the president can veto legislation that they pass but Congress can override the president. And the court's role in all of it is to resolve disputes and maintain the rule of law. Now, our justices serve for life, but they're first nominated by the executive branch and then approved by the legislative branch before taking office. Now, none of that's true in Israel. Uh, Israel doesn't have a constitution. They have what they call the basic laws. They don't have an executive branch that's separate from the legislative branch. The head of the government is the head of the party that forms the coalition. And members of Israel's judicial system, including their Supreme Court, aren't nominated by the prime minister and approved by the legislature. They're basically chosen by a nine-member judicial selection committee. Now, it's composed of three Supreme Court judges, two Knesset members, two cabinet ministers, and two representatives of the Israel Bar Association. In other words, only four of the nine votes come from outside the Supreme Court or Bar Association itself. And it gets worse. Rather than just interpreting the law, Israel's Supreme Court uses a concept called reasonableness to reject or reinterpret what they believe is right for society. Hmm. They can apply broad interpretations of the law to fit their own perceptions of values and, and balance and equity, even if they're not actually part of the law. Now, what the current government's seeking to do is to add checks and balances to a court system that acts as a law unto itself and that believes it has the right to impose its views on the Knesset, striking down laws that it disagrees with. Now, could this new government and their proposals go too far? Well, that is a concern. Uh, what's really needed is for all sides to come together to design a system that keeps the courts from invalidating the decisions of the Knesset, 
while also guarding the rights of minorities. Now, those who are most worried and most vocal right now are those who have supported the progressive decisions made by the courts over the past few decades. But those decisions weren't democracy. They were courts taking power away from those elected by the people. So it really is a mess, uh, but hopefully one that will get sorted out in the weeks and months ahead. Israel's new government has imposed sanctions on the Palestinian Authority. What's the reason for the sanctions, and what impact will they likely have on the people? Well, the sanctions were imposed by Israel, and they include freezing all illegal Palestinian building plans in Area C of the West Bank. That's the part of the West Bank that Israel holds full control over. Uh, Israel also made it difficult for Palestinian officials to travel outside Palestinian-controlled areas, and they're withholding tax fees that they collect for the Palestinians. Now, the amount that's being withheld is equal to the stipend the Palestinians pay to the families of those who've killed Israelis. And Israel says they're going to take that money and use it to compensate the families uh, who have had loved ones who've been killed. Now, Israel's taken these steps in response to the Palestinian Authority's push to have the UN seek an advisory opinion from the world court against Israel. Now, the full impact of Israel's actions, they're not yet known. Uh, some Palestinians want the Palestinian Authority to pull back all security cooperation with Israel and to even rescind all previous agreements with Israel, opening the way to armed resistance. But other Palestinians want to hold back from going that far. They believe that that could harm the Palestinian cause. Uh, they want to make a, a case before the UN and the world court that they do deserve a state. And some are fearful that promoting a more forceful Israeli response could cause the Palestinian Authority itself to collapse. Right now, the Palestinian Authority is hoping the Biden administration will apply greater pressure on the new government to get it to pull back from its threats. Uh, U.S. Secretary of State Blinken told Israel's new foreign minister that the U.S. will oppose any actions that undermine the two-state solution to the conflict. And sometime in February, the U.S. National Security Advisor is going to be traveling to Israel to meet with senior members of the new government to express the official U.S. position. Now, what's not yet clear is the impact these sanctions will have on the Palestinians. It would be helpful if both sides could come to the table to discuss the issues. But frankly, I'm not too hopeful of that, at least right now. It's the land and the book from Moody Radio. Dr. Charlie Dyer, our host. I'm John Geiger. Will Israel try to celebrate Passover this year by sacrificing lambs on the Temple Mount? Activists are asking the new government for permission to do so. Will they be allowed? And if so... How will the Muslims likely respond? Yeah, you know, every year a group called Returning to the Mount has asked the government for permission to take a portable altar up on the Temple Mount to offer the Passover sacrifice. And every year they've been denied permission. Now, in recent years, they've ended up performing the sacrifice in the Jewish quarter of the old city. Just over a week ago, the group submitted its most recent request to offer the sacrifice this coming Passover. Now, what makes this year's request unique is that the individual in charge of making the final decision is the newly installed National Security Minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir. Now, he's the one who created a stir when he went up on the Temple Mount two weeks ago. Ben-Gavir has apparently sought to perform the Passover sacrifice himself back in 2006. And then in 2017, he defended in court those who were arrested for trying to ascend the Temple Mount secretly. Now, his argument was, that it's undemocratic to forbid Jews from performing a religious commandment. Now, right now, it's unclear what Ben-Gavir might decide. It's also unclear how Prime Minister Netanyahu will respond. 
But it is clear what Muslims will do should permission be granted. You know, back in October 1990, that's a long time ago, a Jewish group sought permission to lay the foundation stone for a new temple on the Temple Mount. That request was denied, but it still caused a riot that resulted in the death of 17 Palestinians, the wounding of an additional 150, with more than 20 Israeli civilians and police also wounded. Now, if an altar would be set up on the Temple Mount and sacrifices made, I suspect an even greater riot will occur. Now, we do know the Bible says sacrifices will resume in the end times, only to be halted by the coming Antichrist. But we're not told when those offerings will begin, and hopefully it won't be this coming Passover. Two Jewish youths were arrested and charged with vandalism of a Protestant cemetery on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Why is this particular incident significant for us? Yeah, this caught my attention actually for two reasons. First, it's a reminder that as we look at the Middle East, no one side has a monopoly on hatred or bigotry or prejudice. The two teenagers were ultra-Orthodox Jews from central Israel, and they were caught on CCTV smashing and toppling gravestones, especially those that had crosses on top. Now, thankfully, Israel has been taking the incident very seriously. The two were arrested and charged with vandalism. Now, the second reason, though, this event was so significant, at least for some of us, is that the cemetery is the oldest Protestant cemetery in Jerusalem. One of the headstones that was smashed was a fellow named Bishop Gobat. He was the first Anglican bishop of Jerusalem. And on my very first trip to Israel, I studied at the Institute of Holy Land Studies, now called Jerusalem University College, which is housed in what was the Bishop Gobat School, one of the first buildings outside the walls of the old city. The cemetery that was vandalized is located right next to that school there on Mount Zion. The cemetery is the resting place for some of the significant Protestant figures in Jerusalem in the past 150 years, including Sir Flinders Petrie, an early giant of archaeology in both Egypt and Palestine. The cemetery is also where Horatio Spafford is buried. And if you're not familiar with his name, he's the one who wrote, It is well with my soul. I've enjoyed wandering through the cemetery on a number of occasions, and it brings some of the recent history of Jerusalem into clear focus. Now, I do applaud the Israeli government for taking the vandalism seriously, and hopefully this will help some people on all sides to recognize how wrong such actions are. Thank you, Charlie, and that's a look at current events. You know, a lot of people are under the mistaken impression that, you know, if you've got a good idea for a radio program, you just let people know, and the stations are probably pretty glad to to put it on the air. But the truth is quite different than that, Charlie. There's a lot of competition for airspace, and Why is it so important that uh, those who appreciate the land of the book let this station know? That's right. There's always more programs that want to be on the air than there is space available for them. And if a program's on the air and they don't get much response at a station, well, they say, well, maybe there's something else. And they look around to see if there's another program. So if this program meets your needs, let the station know. You're encouraging them to keep the program on the air. And, of course, we appreciate that. Sure. And hopefully you do, and hopefully the station will appreciate hearing from you as well. Yeah, who doesn't like to get an email, a card, a text, whatever, of encouragement, letting them know how you are connecting with the content that's being offered. So thanks for writing a note, a letter, a text, maybe even making a phone call. And that's a look at current events here on The Land of the Book. Coming up, a look at the Abraham Accords here on The Land and the Book. When the idea was first conceived, not many thought it had even the slightest chance of becoming a reality. 
A joint normalization between Israel and the United Arab Emirates? Normalization between Israel and Bahrain? But that didn't dampen the enthusiasm or stop conversation about the Abraham Accords. What do they really mean for Israel and the Arab world? We'll talk about it next. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and it's a true honor to welcome back to our studio today a guy that we consider to be a very good friend and a man for whom we have enormous respect. Yinam Cohen is the Council General of Israel to the Midwest. He's a career diplomat with 15 years of experience in the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He served in Spain, Colombia, Berlin, Germany, and now Chicago. And before arriving in Chicago, Yinam Cohen held the position of senior policy advisor to Foreign Minister Gabby Ashkenazi and director of the policy department in the minister's bureau. Prior to that, Council General Cohen was the director of the U.N. Political Affairs Department, where he oversaw Israel's diplomatic campaigns in the U.N. Security Council and General Assembly in Israel. It is truly a pleasure to welcome him back to the Land of the Book program today. Thanks for honoring us by coming to our studios. Such a pleasure to be here with you today. All right. Well, let's dive right into today's conversation because you, sir, are uniquely gifted to talk about the Abraham Accords. And for those who are less familiar, what exactly are we referring to when we speak of the Abraham Accords? Well, basically, it is the new peace agreements between Israel and three of its Arab neighbors, that is Morocco, Bahrain, and the United Arab Emirates. But if we want to look a bit further it is probably the biggest diplomatic accomplishment in the recent decades in the Middle East. That's a big deal, not a small deal. You were actually present when these accords were developed and signed. Describe the process. What memories come to mind? Oh, that's true. I I worked, as you mentioned, uh, with the foreign minister, Gabi Ashkenazi. And I have to say that the, the actual fact of the agreements came as a surprise to all of us because they were managed by a very small group of leaders from the Arab countries, the United States, President Trump was back then the president, and Israel. But once it was signed, it was clear to us that something very big is happening and that we have to make sure that we turn it into the most positive development for Israel and for the region. So let me tell you, for example, right before the signing of the agreement, I was privileged to take part and to be on board on the first official flight from Tel Aviv to Bahrain. Hmm. Um, I had the privilege to fly over the Saudi desert. You know, many Americans do not understand that, but for us Israelis, it is a big deal. Think of Israel as an island. We are surrounded by many countries, Arab countries. Some of them are, you know, we have peace with, with others we don't. And our options are very limited to being able to fly over Arab countries. We arrived to Bahrain. We went to the royal palace. We met with the crown prince and his team discussing the very last details of the agreement. That was, for me, you know, something unbelievable. You know, I came back home on that evening and, um, you know, my wife asked me, how was your day? So I told her, you know, <laughs> I was at the Royal Palace in Bahrain making peace. Uh, so that that was very exciting. Pretty good day. Yes. <laughs> With us in our Land of the Book studio is Yinam Cohen, the Council General of Israel to the Midwest. I'm John Geiger, and we're talking about the Abraham Accords. What kind of tension did you observe in the dialogue that went on at, at various stages? That's a very good question. You know, the one thing that really struck me is that there was only positive tension 
most of the tension, and I had a very demanding boss, the foreign minister of Israel, is that we need to do things faster. Mm. You know, we have had, unfortunately, the conflict with some of our Arab neighbors for decades. Yes. And now the amazing thing about the Abraham Accords is that the ambition, not only on our side, but also on the Arab side, was amazing. They were pressing and pushing us to get accords faster, to get accords, you know, broader accords, more long-term accords on trade, on R&D, on tourism. There was a huge pressure, I wouldn't say tension, but pressure to do big things and to do them fast. And this is something very unique and I would say unprecedented in the Middle East. Okay, what are some of the bigger hurdles that uh, were in the way, hurdles that had to be climbed over to reach the final stage? You know, some of the regional players in the Middle East weren't very fond of the idea of peace between Israel and some Arab countries. Mm -hmm. For example, some of our Palestinian neighbors tried to uh, put some hurdles because they said, they claimed that, you know, any Arab country should not have peace with Israel before they decide to move forward and doing, making peace with Israel. Iran is a major issue. It's a big threat in the Middle East, not yes. only on Israel, but also on many of the moderate Arab countries. And I would have to say Europe and the United States. For sure. And they were also trying to put some hurdles. But I'm very happy because... These peace agreements are a result of a common understanding that it's good, it's a win-win situation, and this is why it's so successful. He's a career diplomat with 15 years of experience in the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Our guest today on The Land of the Book is Council General Yinam Cohen. Well, before these agreements were actually signed, there were high hopes. Uh, what were some of the goals that these countries envisioned? We wanted to create genuine partnership in the Middle East for the benefit of the peoples. And I can tell you, I was there two years ago. You know, we just celebrated the second anniversary of the Abraham Accords. So I was there two years ago when we just worked on, on the Accords. We were very optimistic. I can tell you today, two years later, that the actual things on ground are much, much better than any positive expectations that we had back then. Really? Tourism, commerce, R&D, it's, 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 you know, it's bustling, it's skyrocketing, and it's, it's truly amazing. So what other kinds of trade and finance arrangements are impacted by these agreements specifically? Let me give you an example. Uh, Israel and the UAE, the United Arab Emirates and Israel are two small countries, uh, very innovative ones, and... This is a basis for an amazing commerce relations. Look at the numbers. In 2020, we had 100 million dollars uh, of commerce, which is not much. Um, a year later, we had 1.5 billion dollars. Wow. Uh, we're going to end 22 with more than 2.5 billion dollars. That's 2,500 percent growth in two years. Hmm. Show me a company that does this, gives this profit <laughs> ROI, and I'd be very happy to invest in it. Uh, what has been the actual impact on the Abraham Accords to date? Have they met all the expectations or, or is there a sense in some areas maybe we overestimated the hype was a bit bigger than reality? I mean, those are great numbers for sure. But uh, any any things that maybe haven't quite turned out the way you'd hoped? You know, in terms of the agreements that we have with the three countries, with Morocco, with Bahrain and with the UAE, I believe it is going on a very positive truck. What I did expect two years ago is that more countries would join more rapidly, and that has been a slower process, but we're very optimistic. Yeah, you would think, though, that these other countries would look. I mean, they can see the numbers for themselves. 
That's uh, true. Uh, why would they not jump on board? So, you know, the golden bullet for us is, of course, Saudi Arabia. That is the biggest Arab country in the region. Uh, it's an Arab leader. We want to see Saudi Arabia joining the table. So there has been gradual steps. Also, thanks to the very deep American involvement, because, you know, we can't have peace without the great support of our American allies. So we have seen some progress with Saudi Arabia, but it's a very traditional yes. country, very conservative. So everything is, is slower. Yeah, we've talked with the New York Times bestseller Joel Rosenberg, and he says that there's a lot of conversation going on behind the scenes that you're not going to read about in the media. There's a lot more closeness than you would be led to believe, that there is good dialogue going on in back channels. That's true. I think that Saudis understand well that uh, they need the alliance. They need uh, the close contacts with Israel because we share interests. We share interests about uh, regional security. Iran is a big threat both to Israel and Saudi Arabia. We share interests in regional development. Israel is, you know, is called the startup nation. It's a land of innovation. The Saudis really want to transfer their country into a more innovative country. And Israel is definitely a good partner. So I think they understand it. There are many back channels conversations. And I really hope that in the upcoming year, in 23, we'll be able to see also progress on the diplomatic level. Well, you can get the sense that Council General Yunam Cohen has a firm grasp on what he's doing and in his role. You probably didn't know that he likes to explore new cuisines, tries to balance his calories with daily <laughs> jogging. He speaks English, Hebrew, Spanish, and German. And now I feel one inch tall. <laughs> hey, what do these Abraham Accords say, if anything, about the possibility of further progress in the Arab-Israeli conflict? So, you know, people call it the Arab-Israeli conflict, but I would say that we have had the conflict with our Palestinian neighbors for many years. You know, in a way, it's a legitimate conflict. It's a conflict between two national narratives. And I think the only way to solve this conflict is through negotiations. Unfortunately, we haven't found partners on the other side. But at the same time, we have to remember that it's not an Arab-Israeli conflict because many Arab neighbors are now with peace in Israel yes. and working together with Israel on regional stability, on progress, on innovation. And that is the good news. Yeah, that's, and that's a good point to make. You know, maybe we've labeled it wrongly. Well, what nations are now exploring similar accords? You mentioned Saudi Arabia conversation going on there. Do we know of any other nations that are at least thinking about it? That's a very good question. We really want to see more um, Gulf countries joining the accords. One possible country would be Oman, for example. Mm -hmm. That is also in, in the part of the uh, Gulf Arab Gulf countries. But it's more than the Arab countries. We want to see more Muslim countries yes. uh, doing peace with Israel. For example, Indonesia, Malaysia. These are countries with which, unfortunately, we don't yet have diplomatic relations. And this is something that both the Americans and Israel share the ambition to bring more peace agreements to the table. How can our listeners support or encourage further agreements like the Abraham Accords? We're not in positions of government. We're not, you know, dealing with foreign policy. We're not jetting off like you to the palace and, and uh, signing agreements. What can our listeners do? You know, please pray for peace in the Middle mm. East. This is always very important. Secondly, come and visit us. Come and visit Israel. Show support in Israel. And when you come to Israel, don't go only to Israel. Go visit another Arab country. Go to the uh, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, and tell them how important it is for you as Americans that there is peace in the Middle East because when they hear it, that sends a very strong message. So whatever you do, you can support us by visiting, by praying, or by talking to your 
congressmen or yes. congresswomen and, and urge them to support more strongly the peace in the Middle East. Okay, you mentioned going to the Holy Land. Uh, let's talk about that for just a minute. What is the numbers looking like? What's the whole thing going by way of uh, tourism in Israel? I understand you're really on the uptick. You know, last time we talked, it was right after the COVID. Mm-hmm. Israel was just opening. Mm-hmm. Today, it's a whole different situation. The country is fully open. Tourists from America and all over the world, and Arab countries, by the way, are coming. Um, the possibilities are amazing. The winter is in Israel, unlike in Chicago, is very mild. So you can even go in, in December or January or February. You'll get very decent weather. The food is amazing. Um, you can always go on desert to tourism even even during the winter so the possibilities are amazing even though I don't know if you know it but Israel is a tiny little country we're no you know Lake Michigan is three times bigger than the state of Israel mm. but despite of that the opportunities are endless so I invite every listener to uh, consider the possibility of visiting the Holy Land okay someday when we're over there together where would you take me as one of your very favorite spots what would we see what would we do I would take you to the Negev I would take you to uh, Kibbutz Sdeboker this is where our I would say founding father the first prime minister of Israel David Ben-Gurion uh, established his home mm. it was total desert but he envisioned six years ago that that is going to be the future of the state of Israel and today the Negev the desert is flourishing with high-tech uh, with universities with huge hospitals with amazing tourist attractions so it is always good to remember that we're here because of amazing visionaries and amazing leaders and Always uh, too short a time with Yinam Cohen, Council General of Israel to the Midwest. Really appreciate your expertise today, and I hope you'll come again. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. More to come on today's broadcast, including a return from Dr. Charlie Dyer to answer your questions about the Bible and his devotional later on, right here on The Land and the Book. Welcome back to the Land of the Book. I'm John Geiger, kind of excited to discover what it is that you're wondering about as you study Scripture, maybe go to a Bible study, or just stumble onto something of a biblical nature that makes you say, huh, I wonder. This is the place to take that wonder, that question. And uh, in this uh, format, we're going to get to a lot of those questions. First, though, a question that I'd like to ask, how do you share the gospel with a Jewish person? Because of cultural, historical, and religious differences, It's sometimes challenging to navigate a gospel conversation with somebody from a Jewish background. You ever wondered how the quote-unquote professionals do it? Well, to answer that question, our friends at Life and Messiah want to mail you samples of the tracks their staff use as they share the gospel. This will serve a dual purpose of equipping you in methods of presenting the gospel and also supplying you with tracks you can give to your Jewish friends and neighbors. Life and Messiah's prayer is that these tracks will help further the spread of the gospel among the Jewish people. To receive this helpful assortment of tracks, all you need to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button there for more information. Don't miss out on this great opportunity. Well, I hope Reggie's listening because his question is our first today. He says, I thoroughly enjoy listening to the land and the book. Now, here's the question. Is the lion and the eagle in Daniel 7 verse 4 describing Great Britain and the United States, also is the bear Russia and the leopard Germany, according to verses 5 and 6. 
Well, Reggie, I don't believe the lion and the eagle in Daniel 7 describe Great Britain and the United States, nor do I see the bear picturing Russia or the leopard Germany. Uh, The four beasts in Daniel 7 are parallel to the four parts of the statue from Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. And both chapters picture the rise of four Gentile powers during the times of the Gentiles until God again restores his kingdom. Now, in Daniel 2, Daniel definitely identifies the first of these four kingdoms as the Babylonian Empire ruled by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, The parallel to this in chapter 7 is the first beast, which is the lion with the wings of the eagle. So uh, that beast represents Babylon. Now, I believe the beast in Daniel 7 is the perfect picture of the Babylonian Empire. Babylon identified with lions. They had images of lions on their walls and in the throne room. They even kept live lions uh, since Daniel was thrown into a den of lions there. The eagle's wings symbolized the power and majesty of this empire. Well, that is until God plucked off its wings. You remember God humbled the first king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, because of his pride in Daniel 4. And then he humbled the last king of Babylon, uh, Belshazzar, in Daniel 5 for the same reason. So rather than trying to read modern nations back into the prophecy, I think it's always best to see if God provides an interpretation within the book itself. And in this case, I think God clearly identified the first beast with the first of these four Gentile powers that exercised control over the Jewish people. And then it was followed by Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. Another Old Testament question. Todd takes us to Jeremiah chapter 23 asking, would you say that the adultery Jeremiah mentions in 23 is physical or spiritual? You know, I think Jeremiah actually has both in mind. And I say that because back in Jeremiah 5, verses 7 to 8, Uh, Jeremiah connected together both physical and spiritual adultery. There he wrote, Why should I forgive you? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by gods that are not gods. I supplied all their needs, yet they committed adultery and thronged to the houses of prostitutes. They're well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for another man's wife. I believe the houses of prostitutes included religious prostitutes who served Baal in this way. Uh, Their false worship combined spiritual apostasy, and physical adultery as part of their worship service. And then in the very next verse, he mentions those individuals lusting after another man's wife, which clearly is physical adultery. So in 2310, Jeremiah then connects the adultery to the message of the false prophets, while in verse 14, he says the prophets themselves commit adultery. All this to say, uh, it seems to me, Jeremiah sees both physical adultery and spiritual adultery intertwining in the actions of both the people and the religious leaders in his day. It's The Land and the Book from Moody Radio, Segment 3, Q&A, Your Way. Here's one from Roy. He says, My brother sent me an article from the BBC on the places where Joseph, Mary, and Jesus spent time in Egypt. It has stirred my curiosity, so I'm wondering what your travel and research have led you to believe. Is there any verifiable support for this episode from Jesus' life? Yeah, and uh, having read the article, I can say this. The article is indeed uh, quite speculative. In fact, the only evidence on the journey to Egypt by Jesus, Mary, and Joseph is the account in Matthew 2. Uh, It's true they fled the night the Magi visited, probably a few hours before Herod's troops came from Jerusalem to kill all the babies. Now, the problem I have with the article is that the later Christian tradition that they are quoting really doesn't match up logically or chronologically with what we know from history. Logically, Joseph would have taken Mary and Jesus to some place in Egypt where he, as a foreigner, would have felt safe and secure. And that was almost certainly Alexandria in the Nile Delta. Now, at that time, about a third of Alexandria's population was Jewish. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus would have been able to blend in among this large population as they waited for Herod to die. And 
chronologically, the Holy Family was most likely not in Egypt for three and a half years. Uh, Jesus was born sometime between 6 and 4 B.C. In fact, a date sometime in late 5 B.C. or early 4 B.C. is probably the most reasonable. Herod died the spring or early summer of 4 B.C., so the time between Jesus' birth and the death of Herod was far less than two years, and we assume there were several months between his birth and the visit of the Magi, so the total time the family spent in Egypt was likely far less than a year. Rather than traveling throughout the land of Egypt, it just seems far more likely they found temporary lodging among the Jewish community in Alexandria until word reached that community informing them that Herod had died. Follow-up question from uh, Roy. He says, where did the Jews come from who populated the city of Alexandria? Were they Jews who decided to remain in Egypt after the Exodus for one reason or another and would have gravitated to Alexandria after it was founded? Or would these be Jews who migrated to Alexandria from Israel and elsewhere after the Exodus and the founding of the city in 325 B.C.? Maybe you have some thoughts on this. Yeah, well, the Jewish population in Alexandria came actually from a number of different places. I think, no doubt, some were Jews who fled to Egypt after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 and who remained there. In fact, Jeremiah 43 tells us about the Jews who fled during that time. Now, Josephus also says Alexander the Great, after founding the city of Alexandria, gave them, the Jews, equal privilege of citizenship with the Macedonians themselves. Now, so in that same section, Josephus adds, uh, there were not a few other Jews who of their own accord went to Egypt as invited by the goodness of the soil and the liberality of Ptolemy. Ptolemy was one of the four generals who divided up Alexander's empire following his death. So Ptolemy controlled Egypt and he evidently encouraged Jews to move there. And finally, I think other Jews fled to Egypt during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, who began the persecution of the Jewish people in Judea. Egypt became the place to flee during persecution, and I think that's why Joseph decided to go there, because there was such a large community who had made it there over the years. Thanks for joining us today on The Land of the Book. A question now from Chris. What is a good response for Christians in explaining why they disagreed with the 2015 Supreme Court decision to legalize same-sex marriages? As a Christian, I realize such marriages are contrary to God's Word, but for those who have little or no regard for biblical truth— I struggle with the best way to discuss this topic with non-believers and or gay friends. In our increasingly secular society, I don't expect them to agree, but I'm hoping to come across lovingly and not hateful in my reply. Yeah, and my answer is going to seem at first rather strange, but follow along. I divide it actually into two parts. First, what you say, and second, how you say it. Now, I see a principle in 1 Peter 3 that I find helpful. There Peter wrote, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, always being prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now, while not speaking directly to the issues you've raised, Peter does tell us to make sure we're exalting Christ in our response. Now, that suggests to me that we need to uphold God's word and God's standards. And I think we can do this in a positive way by explaining what God says about marriage, that it's a union between a man and a woman, and why God does not sanction any other union, including premarital or extramarital sexual relations, as well as homosexual relations. And I believe we can share that God intends the family to be the primary social building block on which society itself is based. Now, all this leads to the second point Peter makes, and that's how we're to say this. He tells us to speak with gentleness and respect 
and with a clear conscience, knowing that our goal is to promote the truth of his word, not to win a debate or not to put down someone who objects. Peter also notes that it's likely that those to whom we speak will reject and even speak maliciously against us. So be prepared to face that rejection, but following up on our words with our own good behavior can help penetrate attitudes to the point where someone you're talking to might become ashamed of their slander. Now, I believe there's a number of good books that can also help provide the information you need to speak with confidence in this regard. In fact, one I would suggest is uh, written by Christopher Yuan, that's Y-U-A-N, and the book's called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. Uh, Spend as much time as you can working your way through not just his book, but what the Bible says, so that you can speak the truth in love, because that's what God will use to penetrate hearts. Charlie, quite a variety of questions today. I mean, we have covered a lot of ground. We certainly have. And if we didn't get to your question, maybe it's because you didn't send it to us. Shame on you. Well, not really shame on you, but you can send it to us with a quick email. Here's how, thelandandthebook at moody.edu. For a lot of people, our next segment is their all-time favorite. Charlie's devotional next on The Land and the Book. glad to have you with us here on The Land and the Book. Our email address is thelandandthebook at moody.edu. If you've got an idea you'd like to share, a thought, a comment, love to hear from you. And by all means, don't be bashful about sharing how God is using the program in your life. The Land and the Book at moody.edu. Charlie, I love this segment and so many do, and they let us know in their emails why. And I think There's just something special about connecting a passage in Scripture with a place in Israel, and you have a great way of doing it. I love doing it, John. And uh, today we're going to be heading to Jerusalem for a look at the city walls. All right. All that after we take this listen to somebody who's been to the Holy Land and shares a Holy Land experience with us right now. I'm Alan Zachary from Crawfordsville, Indiana. Um, We were standing on top of the Herodium. And the thing that really stood out to me in this trip is you get a real perspective of the land of Israel from one end to the other. I did not have that perspective before when we hear about the West Bank or we hear about the Gaza Strip or or the occupied territories. They were just words before, but now I have that perspective of really knowing what the land is all about. And I really want to thank you for that. Hi, I'm LaRonda from Crawfordsville, Indiana, and before coming over to uh, Israel, I asked a number of our friends uh, if they had anything specifically that they wanted me to pray for them today at the Wailing Wall, and so today it was just a real privilege to be able to approach the wall and um, write the names down that I had been requested to pray for, and then just take them and squeeze them into those cracks and uh, hang on to that original part of the wall and just go before the Lord and ask Him to intercede on the behalf of my friends and loved ones back at home. And then I learned even afterwards that even when those little pieces of paper fill up the cracks and they wash them out, that those papers are not just trash that they're taken and actually buried on the Mount of Olives. And that was a real blessing for me today. Charlie, the title of your devotional today sounds like a a riddle to me. Yeah, what's harder to win than a walled city? And it's from Proverbs chapter 18, verse 19. In fact, this week is week three in our four-week series that I've called Proverbs to Live By in the New Year. And today's journey does take us to the top of Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Now, unfortunately, Mount Zion, that is the place where you're now standing, is not the Mount Zion of the Bible. 
The Bible's Mount Zion refers to the original city of David and the Temple Mount, but we're standing on a hill that didn't become part of Jerusalem until the time of King Hezekiah. When pilgrims started coming to the Holy Land centuries ago, they sought out the sites of the Bible. And since this hill where we're now standing dominates the rest of the city, these confused pilgrims thought this had to be Mount Zion, and the name stuck, even though it's describing the wrong part of town. But since we're here, I want you to look at the gate in front of us, which mistakenly is called Zion Gate. Now walk over and take a closer look at the walls above and on either side of the gate. But be careful. Cars and motorbikes use this gate today to exit the old city, and as they squeeze their way out and around the corner, the scrapes and scratches on their fenders and bumpers make it pretty clear that this gate was not designed for cars. Now, examine the walls themselves. They're 500 years old, yet they're still very solid, but if you look closely, you can see hundreds of pockmarks on the walls. Those are from bullets fired back in 1948 when the Jewish forces outside the city tried to break in to resupply and rescue the Jews still living inside. The pockmarks hint at the ferocity of the battle. Sadly, the Jewish forces weren't able to fight their way into the city and the Jewish quarter fell. But I wanted to bring you here because this wall and gate illustrate another of King Solomon's Proverbs. In Proverbs 18:19, he wrote, an offended brother is more unyielding than a fortified city, and disputes are like the barred gates of a citadel. So as we stand here, let's try to understand what Solomon was saying. Uh, the first line literally says, a brother offended, then a strong city. Uh, Solomon compares someone who's been offended to a strong city protected by a wall. But we need to supply something to help connect the two parts of that line. Uh, the New American Standard Bible adds the phrase, harder to be won suggesting it's harder to win over a friend or brother who's been offended than it is to conquer a strong city. The NIV adds the word unyielding, suggesting the offended friend or brother is more unyielding than a fortified city. Now, both are presenting essentially the same idea. Once you've offended someone, it can be more difficult to win them back than it is to try to conquer a walled city that refuses to surrender. Now, both apparently can be done. After all, Jerusalem was conquered many times in spite of its walls. But regaining the friendship, trust, and understanding of someone we've offended can be very difficult. And some fractured friendships never get mended. The pain, hurt, and anger are just too strong. People who were once friends can go years, decades, sometimes the rest of their lives without ever resolving their problems. The last line of the proverb adds additional insight. Solomon writes, and disputes are like the barred gates of a citadel. Now, the word for disputes has the idea of contention or quarreling or strife. And if you've ever gotten into a heated argument with someone, you understand Solomon's point. The original issue becomes lost in a sea of anger and fiery debate. The gates of a person's mind and heart slam shut and prying them back open is harder than prying open the wooden gates guarding a city's stronghold. Now, we all know how hard it is to win over someone once we've offended them. But what can we do to keep from offending them in the first place? Proverbs 18, 19 highlights the problem. But where do we go to find the solution? What can we do to help keep someone from building up walls and barring the gates to their heart? Actually, Solomon provides the answer in the preceding verses. Verse 19 is the capstone to a series of verses that talk about how to work through the minefields of interpersonal relationships. He begins in verse 15 where he writes, 
The heart of the discerning acquires knowledge. The ears of the wise seek it out. You might have heard your mom say, that's why God gave you two eyes, two ears, and just one mouth. Solomon's saying the best thing to do is to listen and try to understand the other person's circumstances before you speak. A verse 16 almost sounds like it doesn't belong here. A gift opens the way for the giver and ushers him into the presence of the great. Now, I don't believe Solomon is encouraging you to try to bribe your way into someone's favor. Rather, he's reminding you that not everyone who appears to be a friend of the wealthy or a person of influence got there through hard work and playing by the rules. Never turn away from a true friend to side with someone like that. A verse 17 is the other side of the coin. The first to present his case seems right till another comes forward and questions him. Solomon's telling you to be sure to hear both sides of an issue rather than making your decision after hearing just one side. And, by the way, that piece of advice is still true today. Don't make up your mind based on one person's presentation. Ask yourself what they're not telling you, and then listen carefully to the other side. You will be wiser for it. Finally, verse 18 is the last key part. Casting the lot settles disputes and keeps strong opponents apart. Solomon's not saying you solve all your disputes by flipping a coin, but there are times when two different courses of action can both work. And in those times, look for a way to ask for God's guidance rather than digging in your heels. Sometimes flipping a coin is a valid way to settle a dispute if, after exploring both options, you're willing to admit that they seem equally valid. It helps avoid having winners and losers in disputes. Okay, take one last look at Jerusalem's walls and the pockmarks. There was a ferocious battle here to take the city, and sadly it failed. But that battle can pale in comparison to trying to win over a family member or friend you have offended. So how do you win them over? By trying not to offend them in the first place. Listen to what they're saying with an understanding heart. Watch to see if someone is trying to influence your decision using improper means or motives. Remember, the first to speak can sound persuasive, so focus on trying to understand both sides. And sometimes you might find that compromise or even casting a lot or flipping a coin to let God decide might just allow you to move forward without turning a friend into a foe. And those are the wise words for a new year from King Solomon. And Charlie, those are sobering words because uh, every one of us is never more than an inch away, a conversation away from destroying a, a friendship, a relationship. We are, and that's why Proverbs is so practical. It gives us that day-to-day -day advice that we so desperately need. Maybe you'd like to hear today's devotional or the entire program again. You can at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Charlie, why is it so important that uh, people affirm the, the management at this station who provide airtime for the land and the book? Well, there are far more programs wanting to be on air than the station has time to air. So uh, if a program appears to be uh, meeting the needs of listeners, well, they keep it on. But if they don't hear from listeners, then they think, well, maybe it's not meeting that need and they look for another program to take its place. So do yourself a favor, do us a favor, and let the management at this station know you appreciate you listen to The Land and the Book. Thanks so much. I'm John Giger for Charlie Dyer and the team. The Land of the Book is a presentation of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.